Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Steph, what's going on? What's going on? Uh, nothing much. Actually, getting prepared. It's going to be a fun week for me and also a stressful week. We have mm-hmm. a lot of family coming into town because John is graduating from residency on Friday. Oh, that's what's up. Congr- congrats to John. Let's get That's major. That is a long journey. Undergrad, four years of medical school, four years of residency. I know he's ready. I'm ready too. He's actually out of town right now studying um, for boards, which he'll take okay. in August. So um, yeah, it's exciting and also nerve wracking. I need to clean. I, I have family and then laws coming into town. <laughs> that is always the issue when people come into town. You know how that oh, be. <laughs> What's up with you? Session. Nothing much. Um, uh, low key, been a little hype because of that Jay Z and Beyonce album drop. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's so funny because I saw last night listening to it. It's funny. I saw a meme. It was like it was a quiet Saturday, and then all of a sudden, and it's like a <laughs> picture of like a giraffe busting out like somebody's car window. Like okay, like. They just really <laughs> shut it down that quickly. I haven't listened to the whole thing, but I saw the video. Yeah, so I'm glad because um, you know, we got tickets to go see the concert in in August when they come to New York. And, we uh, do I was, too. I was about to sell my tickets, boy. I was like, listen, y'all ain't dropping no new music. I'm selling these things and getting to come up because they was already touring so in Europe. Mm-hmm. So I was like, they didn't have, and I heard all the clips, and then they wasn't playing no new music. I'm like, what is this? I ain't about to hear on the run again. Right. They dropped, they dropped that album, so so that's good. So now I'm excited to to head to the concert. It'll be fun. Yeah, me too. So we're going in August in Nashville, Tennessee. And like okay. you, I had I had already gone to like the first on the run tour. So mm-hmm. and I've been to like multiple Beyonce concerts. Yeah. And it's really awesome, but you know, you want something new because you it, want it, the it new can get a yeah, you want especially paying all that money too. Them tickets ain't cheap, boy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's good. So everybody can be off of of Kanye. I mean, Kanye's music. For oh, <laughs> sorry, Freudian for, for slip, Freudian slip. My bad. The shade. Although it seems like they was throwing some shade. They like, were uh, too. You know? Yeah, they yeah. Were too. So I, I ain't mad at it. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, all right, so we got some old Lord news. Yes, of course we do. All right. Hello, and welcome to BHD News, where we give you the most current and eye-opening old Lord news of the week. Join us as we present news that'll make you want to say. Okay, so I have a couple of stories that relate to a major holiday that we just celebrated, Father's mm-hmm. Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, the first story is, did you see the news about the baby daddy cards at Target? Oh my goodness, yes I did. I saw the little, 
I saw it on Instagram, the clips and stuff like that, but that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of like, one of them was just like, thank you for being my husband, my friend, and most of all, my baby daddy. <laughs> Yo, I can't uh, Okay. <laughs> no, that's not necessarily something we celebrate. Okay, let's just keep it at Father's Day, Target. Nice try. I'm trying to be down, but it's when keeping it real goes wrong. <laughs> Target, Target, I hear Okay. Truth. Mm-hmm. This other one is kind of it's related to fatherhood and it's kind of sad. So this guy in Michigan named Aaron Grimes was in a four year relationship with someone named Shavana Van Hooks Williams. They were in a four year relationship, but she was married. But, you know, she gave the guy the story that she and her husband were separated. Mm -hmm. You know, they were just living together for finances. They couldn't afford to divorce, blah, blah, blah. So Aaron got her pregnant and he was excited that he was going to share a child with the woman he loved. Mm -hmm. Okay, so she went to the hospital. And, you know, his uh, the girl's uh, mother called him up there. And when she called him up there, guess who was there holding the baby playing daddy? Oh, oh my goodness. Uh, the husband. No. Yes. Ah! Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. And come to find out there is a Michigan law where if a child is conceived from an affair, the mother gets to decide who the father is or who she wants to be the father. Yes. And she decided she wanted her husband to be the dad. And so the guy is now fighting. You know, he's trying to wage a fight, but it's a 2012 law that's like, no, she gets to choose regardless of what the blood test says. Oh, that's crazy. I mean, oh, man, I don't know. This is when this law stuff gets real tricky, man. <laughs> this gets real Ooh, tricky. Lord have mercy. Now, this, uh, somebody definitely going to, uh, once it's all said and done, make this uh, maybe like a short TV series or something crazy like that. That is crazy. You know, I'm like, did she just use him to conceive? Because maybe the husband couldn't and she was just looking for a baby maybe. out of the scenario. I don't the know. Was holding the baby? Like, did the husband know it wasn't his? That's- yes. Yes. Everybody knew about the affair. The, the girl's mom, <laughs> the girl's mom called the guy she was cheating with to the hospital. Like, everybody knew. That's crazy. Oh, man. Yeah, I don't yeah. know what I would do. I mean, that's just the whole situation is bad. From the start, you know, with her being with the other guy and and being married, and then being like, mm-hmm. I'm gonna have a baby, but mm-hmm. oh, my husband gonna be the. Don't be creeping. Yeah. Don't be creeping, y'all. That's crazy. Got bad consequences. Oh, man. Okay. Okay, so for our last old Lord news story, this one really pissed me off. Um, so it was a man in Auburn. He bought a house and um, based on like some special program, he was going to get a rebate on purchasing the home. So he decided when he signed the closing papers, he wanted the rebate to go to Chase Bank where he had an account. Mm -hmm. So come to find out, I guess in the past, the guy's account had been overdrawn and Chase, when the check was getting deposited, Chase took out his overdraft fees and stuff like that, which was like $600. And because the account was closed, they sent him a check for the refund amount, which was like $8,400. So he gets the check in the mail and goes to Chase Bank to cash it. Chase issued the check. Mm -hmm. He went to Chase to cash it. 
So when he gets there, the teller is suspicious. You know, they're asking him, what does he do for a living? Like, where did he get the check from? And things like that. And so they told him that they wanted to hold the check to verify it. He's like, look, I got stuff to do. Y'all hold it. I'll come back. When he came back the next day, they called the police on him. He was arrested. Oh, my goodness. For what? On Mm -hmm. what cause? Yes. They said uh, they arrested him for fraud. They said that uh, he was trying to cash a fraudulent check. Uh, It was a check they issued. That's insane. That's insane. And so he went to jail on a Thursday. So they arrested him for a felony charge of trying to cash a forged Mm. check. He went to jail on a Thursday. Um, he stayed in jail all Thursday night and he was like really upset uh, because yeah. you know he's a hard working yeah. man. He like, I gotta go to work on yeah, Friday. It ain't no work. You sitting in jail for no reason, like Yes, but he was worried about That's work. Cool. So Friday, Chase realized they made a huge mistake. So they called the detective, I guess that they called on him, and the the detective wasn't in, so they leave him a voicemail. Mm. Of course, he don't get it. So the guy stays in jail until Monday, loses his job. Chase tolls his car from the bank parking lot. Yes, it is impounded. And because he did not have the money to get it out of the impound, his car was auctioned off. Yes. For how how long quicker was that? How so like this this all happened last June. And so the news story just came out this year because he's like, it's been a year. Chase hasn't done anything to help me. Like I lost my car. I lost my job. It took that news story and a lawyer reaching out to him for Chase to finally like say, like, oh, we'll investigate Mm-mm. this. Mm-mm. Chase, y'all got me rethinking my accounts with y'all, man. That's that's crazy. Oh, Lord. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it happened June 23rd of last year. The news story was published like a, a week or so this year. And so there was one update that, you know, said that like, you know, the the lawyer, the guy's lawyer and also Chase said like, oh, you know, this has been resolved like for an undisclosed amount. But it took a year and it took the it took him getting a lawyer and somebody reached like a law firm, like reaching out to him after they heard the story. But like child trying to cash a check from the bank that you want to cash a check from while black lord i don't know you don't know how furious oh my god i would be yo this is (laughs) boy okay all i gotta say is get money honey because they would be paying me that no father doubt i'm taking that house that house that i got the rebate on would be paid off i mean everything i mean y'all i lost my job because of this i lost my car because of this like yo y'all wild (laughs) because i'm cashing a check the thing is and that teller and i also be like yo whoever People need to get fired, like managers, tellers, whoever, because this is your check. It should be so easy to just go in the system and quickly verify, is this our check? Like that simple. And then they still, they took a whole day and then still arrested him the next day when he came back. Wow. And you know what? I've had like, you know, maybe they were salty because they looking at my bank account, but I have had like weird interactions Mm -hmm. at banks where like, okay, maybe I want to cash a tech or maybe I'm like trying to, you know, get some money out of my account. And, you know, they might look and be like, 
is this really you? I remember one time I had to show a passport, my driver's no. license. And I'm like, child, no. and like, seriously? Going straight to the manager. But I, I did close my uh, accounts okay. with that bank because I'm yeah, like, hey, I ain't got, got time, time for all that. That's what I'm saying. Y'all playing games. It should be yeah. simple. Oh, well, that that's a crazy yes. story. That's one of our crazier ones. Again, doing doing anything yes, while black is, is dangerous in this country. <laughs> doing anything while black. Black it man is. with a check. Oh, man. Call the police. Is the same right. That's crazy. Call the police, put him in jail. Yes. And not thinking about the impact that that would have on him, you know, potentially his family, if he had one, I think mm-hmm. he's single. Um, but yeah. Um, and it makes me think about like today's conversation. Like we think about, or we often have conversations about people who are arrested or people who go to jail and like the impact it has on them. But if this man had a family, just think about how it could have mm-hmm. impacted them. And so it makes me think about today's conversation, what we're talking about mass and car and you know people who go through the system and the impact like the long star- long-term intergenerational and devastating impacts that it has not just from being in there mm-hmm. but even when they get out and things yes. of that nature so, so yeah, we, um we, looking forward to this conversation yeah mass incarceration is a topic that i know many people have been hearing in the news when we talk about criminal justice reform this is one of those key words that's been thrown out there and people are trying to understand it's been causing a lot of issues not just from a from a political landscape when we talk about budgets and stuff like that and, and overburdening the system, but um, from a community level and, and and individual level, how it's impacting families, how it's impacting communities and everything like that. Uh, we'll dive into that in today's topic with an interview with Dr. Sarah Wakefield from Rutgers University, the criminal justice program at Rutgers University. Very, very good mm-hmm. interview. Uh, we took the cover a lot. Um, and we asked some really good questions about mass incarceration because we want to just shed some light on it for those of you who hear these terms, but really may not understand it all the way, but also getting an expert to really shed light as far as her research and, and you know, broaden our enlighten us when it comes to this discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so we'll get into today's topic and uh, we'll catch up with y'all afterwards. Yep. When discussing the issue of mass incarceration, We often focus our attention on how incarceration impacts the lives and outcomes of individuals within the system. Less often do we have a conversation about how incarceration impacts their families and the broader community for which they are embedded. For today's conversation, we discuss the impact of mass incarceration on families and children with Dr. Sarah Wakefield, an associate professor of criminal justice at Rutgers University, an expert on the relationship between parental incarceration, child well-being, and the intergenerational transmission of disadvantage. Welcome, Dr. Sarah Wakefield. Thank you for having me. Yes. No, no problem. We're excited to have this discussion today centering around mass, mass incarceration, the community, um, and a lot of uh, what Dr. Wakefield focuses on in her work, which we'll definitely get into throughout this conversation. Uh, but before we get into, you know, a lot of the, most of the majority of the topic, we like to just start off by having our guests kind of introduce themselves to the listeners and tell us a little bit about yourself and the background and kind of why you do what you do. Sure. Um, so I'll talk, just talk a little bit about how I became interested in mass incarceration and families, which is what I generally focus on uh, since graduate school. So I was finishing graduate school around 2006-07, which was at that point many decades into the prison boom. And in, in my field of sociology, there was a lot of research coming out at that time. And most of it was focused on things like employment 
labor market sorts of effects and, and certainly racial inequality. And initially, that's what I wanted to study. And quite frankly, it was just such a crowded field. And I started working with organizations in my community and sort of think, just trying to learn more. And it just became clear that there were a lot of children who were interacting with the criminal justice system through their parents and through the incarceration of their parents. And so that was really something that, that I don't think people were aware of, certainly um, in academe. I remember going on the job market and doing my you know, little dissertation talk. And, and the first question was always, wait, prisoners have kids. And I, you know, and no one, I mean, it just wasn't something, uh, which I think we could talk about, like, why didn't that, why was that surprising to people? Uh, Because I think it's interesting. Um, But it, it, no one says that now, but in 2006, that was the most common sort of comment that I got. So that's why I focused on, on families. Mm. Mm. That's interesting. I'm not sure when it actually came out, but this issue became so big that Sesame Street even tackled it. Yes. Um, and had the, uh, songs related to like, you're not alone. Uh, so it's so interesting that academia had to catch on. Um, before we get more into uh, the topic of families and mass incarceration and how it impacts children, can you actually define that for us? What is mass incarceration? Just so that we can all have a basic baseline understanding of what we're talking about. Sure. Uh, so I think when, when people hear the term mass incarceration, they just think of a lot of people in prison, which which is certainly one part of the definition most of us, I would say, are working off of uh, a sociologist named David Garland, who has this very sort of technical definition of mass incarceration. And, and it's the second piece of it that's important. So mass incarceration is a very high rate of incarceration relative to other countries or relative to different periods in our history. And so we certainly in the United States qualify under that characteristic. The, the second part, which is, I think, more important and and the part that people think less about is is that it's a pattern of incarceration that is highly disparate. And so in Garland's terms, he talks about mass incarceration as being the systematic incarceration of whole groups. So it's incarceration that works at the group level, not at the individual level. And so what that looks like in the United States is some groups or areas having very high rates of incarceration and other groups or areas having very low rates. So incarceration, even at such high levels, is incredibly visible to some populations and wholly invisible to others. So it's not just a lot of people in prison, but it's the patterning by which incarceration happens. Mm. So, you know, even... um and it's something you said, too, when you kind of started your research in, in early 2000, 2006, um, that, you know, this issue with incarceration has been going on for a few decades by that time already. But I feel like more recently, possibly within this last decade or so, the conversation of mass incarceration has got a lot more attention within the media, within politics, activists, et cetera. Um, so what do you think is the cause or the reasons why we see or are hearing so much more about mass incarceration in today's time? So I think, I think there are two causes um, that I would highlight. The, the first one is lawsuits, mm-hmm. and the second one is state budgetary constraints. So I, I think there were always 
activists who who knew what was going on and and were watching it but but I agree with you when I was in graduate school I didn't see I didn't see words like inequality or mass incarceration in the news <laughs> and I think I mentioned this to you in an email, but I, I have a 12 year old who was writing, had to write a paper on a social problem and her teacher gave her a list of things and mass incarceration was one of them. It absolutely never would have been 10 years ago. So I, I think you're right. Um, and part of that has come out of states being largely hampered by their correctional populations. So you had states that had huge numbers of correctional populations, and, and at some point it just becomes untenable. Many of those states were also subject to lawsuits, the best example being California, with, over how people were treated in their prisons and, and mostly related to health care. So all of a sudden you had states who were experiencing budgetary constraints that hadn't existed before. And I think that started conversations among politicians and certainly allowed people who, who were activists some leverage of bringing the conversation more broadly. And, and I also think what you're seeing today, which I think is wonderful, is we, we tend to bracket our conversations about incarceration and without really thinking about other parts of the criminal justice system, right? So you have now a conversation about policing, a conversation about prosecutors, and all of that comes before incarceration. And, and those conversations are no longer as siloed as they used to be, which I think is important. Mm. So in thinking about some of the examples you mentioned, you talked about lawsuits, you talked about, you know, overcrowding. Um, I'd like uh, to hear a little bit more about some of the most pressing issues that are faced by people who are incarcerated. Um, and that's the challenges they face while they're incarcerated, but also after. Sure. Um, in terms of well in prison, one thing I would say about that is that we don't have a rich base of research on the conditions of confinement currently. So, so classic studies in sociology and criminology were, were essentially ethnographers going inside prisons and really paying attention to, to what being in prison was like. And for whatever reason, uh, while the prison boom was happening, social scientists stopped doing that kind of work. And, and I think there's a lot of reasons for why that happened. But, but so what you're now seeing is a lot of people thinking about how can we, how do we set up a prison environment that can be healthy for one, which is related to the lawsuits that I talked about. Um, and, and prisons that are, I don't know if prisons can be helpful, but at least not actively harmful. So I, th I think there's less knowledge about what incarceration is like it, at least in terms of research. Uh, we know that people enter prison with a variety of life histories of trauma, um, lots of deficits that ought to be addressed and often are not. Uh, we know that people experience trauma while incarcerated. Uh, they're also cut off, of course, from important people in their lives. And then we, we release them with having done very little to address any of those things. So you have populations with high rates of learning disabilities, high rates of substance abuse problems, high rates of mental health problems. Um, we like to sort of think about victims and offenders as being different people. But if you look at any population in a prison, what you see are both offenders and victims. So they often have long histories of being the victims of crime. 
uh, or subjected to violence. So, so all of those things sort of get brought in the door. Not much happens when they're inside, and then they're released with those same deficits intact, as well as a bunch of broken ties to to people who might help. You know, have any Daphne or Sarah? Have you ever seen the show Sixty Days In? I haven't. No, oh, I haven't. Either. I mean, it's a, um, a show. It's probably been out for maybe like two, three years or so, and I think it comes on A and E. And what they do is they take you know uh, pretty much people, regular people, volunteer to go inside a jail for 60 days um, and become inmates. And only Mm -hmm. like usually like the warden or like whoever the officers in charge, only like two people really know. Um, And then they have a camera crew in there following everyone. Everyone thinks that it's for like, you know, a documentary. So they don't know who is an inmate and who's not. The way they do it is they're supposed to like gain intel as far as maybe how drugs are coming and stuff like that and report back to it at the end. But what I find fascinating about the show is that it really um, kind of just follows and highlights kind of what goes on while people are incarcerated. Um, And you get it through the perspective of those who've never been incarcerated before, too. But I think it really sheds um, some good light as far as like how what kind of traumatic things happen while in there, the mindset, what you have to do to change, to do to survive. Um, And then also just why we can see, you know, in, in many cases, how the system just doesn't work uh, because they absolutely, and, and many of the jails they look at, they just, people sit there and there's nothing, they don't do anything, no kind of recreation, no kind of stimulation, no, there's nothing, no kind of productivity, no kind of skill set learning. They just sit in a room for 23 hours out the day, 22 hours out the day, whatever it is. And there's just like nothing there. Um, and I can, you can just see how like that kind of breeds a lot of the behaviors or situations that happen uh, while in there. I don't just, I just wanted to give that side note because I find sometimes I show it to my students and they're always like super engaged and super into it. Uh, but for those of you listening too, I think it's just a kind of a good look as far as like what, what it kind of looks like when people are incarcerated. And these are jails and not prisons. So there are some differences, but um, it's pretty, it's a pretty cool show. Um, just a sidebar. Hey. I have to use that in my teaching. I, I should use it in, in just preparing myself when I'm going into a new institution. But that's that's uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty cool. So, um, um, so when we talk about, and I think even you know we talked about this and how when you first started to kind of do this research, the impact when we talk about people who are incarcerated and the impact on families and impact on children. I know for myself when I started to in undergrad, get involved or do research with my and, and my mentor, criminal justice related work. She was doing a lot of work with maternal incarceration. And as a young undergrad, I was like, hmm, you know, I, what? why is this important? You know, why should I study this? You know, I'm trying to do other things like crime and people on the streets and drug dealers and stuff like that. Uh, but as I got more into it, I'm like, whoa, this is a whole nother world that I never knew what was happening as far as just the impact that that occurred, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, I'm sure, as far as when mothers went to prison and on the children and on the caregiver relationships and on the communities and all this kind of stuff. Like it just, this this wealth of like, you know, consequences that happened because of it. Um, and so I think like a lot of people really don't understand how incarceration can impact communities and impact the family unit as well. So can you just shed a little bit of light um, as far as, you know, how does parents being incarcerated kind of impact families and and things like from your work, you know, um, thinking of intergenerational transmission disadvantage and child well-being and stuff like well-being and stuff like that. Can you just shed some light on that for our listeners is how important that is and, and why we need to highlight that a little bit more, too? 
Sure. Uh, so I've mostly studied uh, paternal, so father incarceration, okay. but I am happy to talk about differences between maternal and paternal. Uh, but yeah, so so I think one of the more insidious parts of, of mass incarceration is that we tend to think of prisoners as these isolates, right? They're not connected to one another and they're not connected to anyone else. And of course, that isn't true. And and so most people who are incarcerated are parents. And for women in particular, they were usually caring for them before they were incarcerated, fathers less so. And so when I was initially doing this research, I, I was a sociologist, but trained as a criminologist. And, and so, you know, it wasn't clear whether parental incarceration would necessarily be bad for kids. So if we, if we think of people who are locked up as dangerous or unstable or, or whatever else, um, maybe incarceration could be good. Uh, and so I, I looked at a bunch of different outcomes and then later with a, with a book that I wrote with my colleague, Chris Wildeman, we added others. And, and essentially what we found is that on average, having a father incarcerated didn't improve anything for kids and in fact harmed them. So we looked at things like mental health and behavioral problems. Uh, we looked at infant mortality. We looked at the risk of homelessness. And across the board, what you see is that, is that parental incarceration was bad for kids. And so it, it had the effect of, of making a situation which arguably wasn't good in the first place, worse. And so you didn't see kids who were all of a sudden better off because an unstable parent wasn't in the household. Um, you essentially saw kids who were taking one more disadvantage and, and sort of piling on uh, of the other disadvantages that they were already facing. And I think mm -hmm. importantly, the other thing that my work has focused on is, is what that has meant for black-white disparities in childhood well-being. And so essentially what we were able to show is that if you're trying to figure out, for example, why um, there's a gap in academic achievement or in mental health and well-being for black and white kids, if you don't account for parental incarceration, you don't have the whole story. And so I think that that was another feature of mass incarceration that has been so insidious and, and important to show. Hmm. So speaking of your book, uh, Children of the Prison Boom, can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by um, a lost generation? Uh, what does that mean? So we were, we were looking at kids who had come of age during the prison boom. So think, so the, the prison boom started in the late 1970s and incarceration rates had a sort of peak in the 90s and then another peak in 2007. And so we were trying to think about what has that meant for the population of children who were born in the 80s and 90s and coming of age at the peak of the prison boom. So their parents were incarcerated at very high rates. And they are the generation that we're talking about. So kids who have lost their parents to prison um, at very high rates experienced all these passed down harms as a result of that experience and now are in adulthood. And, and the point we were trying to make by a, a lost generation is, is and maybe we should have said, you know, an invisible generation where those costs were increasingly borne by children and those children are now coming of age today. And so even if we snapped our fingers and reduced the prison population back down to, you know, what it was in 1950, 
we will still have these cascading problems because of how the harms of incarceration are transmitted through generations. Mm -hmm. So when we look at, you know, um, parents being incarcerated and I, and I know you look primarily at fathers, um, what is, is, is one worse than the other or both about the same as far as mothers being incarcerated or fathers being incarcerated? Are there differences? Can we speak to a little bit about that? Sure. So it's, well, it's complicated. Uh, and I'll say that the the issue of maternal incarceration and what effect that has is hotly contested, and many people arguing about what those effects are, and and so I, and I'll tell you a little bit about that. For fathers, it's much more clear. What what you see is that on average there are detrimental effects of being incarcerated for their children. Those effects are not huge. Um, they are measurable and important, but they also should be viewed in context with the other disadvantages that, that those kids face as well. Uh, but they also appear to be global, right? So you can see father incarceration effects across a host of outcomes. They pop up everywhere. And, and I think the story, at least, or the research evidence on that is fairly clear. With maternal incarceration, I think it's useful to think um, about the differences between men and women who are incarcerated. So among the, the vast majority of prisoners in the United States are men. The population of women is much smaller and also much more select. So women who end up in prison oftentimes have significant, significant problems before they end up there. And their children are exposed to that as well. So some studies find uh, no effects of incarceration per se, and other studies find large effects. And, and so I would just simply say that, that having a mother incarcerated is a reliably good flag for a child who's been exposed to extreme disadvantage. And whether those effects are about what comes before incarceration uh, or whether it's incarceration itself, I think is less important, but it, it really is a flag of kids who, who need all kinds of supports that we aren't giving them. And mm. so, so those are the differences, I would say. Mm-hmm. So um, are there any other impacts uh, on the community that we haven't discussed that you feel are worth mentioning? So for me, I would focus on the spatial concentration of incarceration. So we've, we've talked about racial disparities related to incarceration and, and family outcomes. But it, it again, the, one of the features of mass incarceration is that you have some communities which have incredibly high rates of incarceration and other communities that don't. It's also the case that the people who are living in communities with high incarceration rates are living in communities that have all sorts of other disadvantages. So, so when I think about the, the children that I study, it's not just that they live in a neighborhood where a bunch of people are cycling back and forth between jail and home. They tend to be living in a high poverty neighborhood they tend to be under constant surveillance by police. They tend to be in schools that are failing. Uh, so, so the spatial concentration of incarceration, I think, overlaps generally poverty in this country and, and also legacies of, of racial segregation. So, so one shouldn't think about incarceration as separate from those things. 
Yeah, that you know that kind of reminds me, you know, of the work of Todd Clear and imprisoning communities. Yes. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yeah, that definitely uh, touches touches on that, um, and how it does. Yeah, it does impact communities itself, and not just these kind of isolated uh, incidences or or pockets. Um, and that's something that should be addressed and looked at. So, for our listeners, right, um, as we kind of mentioned earlier. There has there is a lot more discussion around these areas of criminal justice reform or mass incarceration, um, you know, even with popular culture documentaries like Jay Z's documentary talking about Khalif Browder and all that kind of stuff. And he, even uh, recently, we've seen that Kim Kardashian went to go visit President Trump to discuss prison reform as well. Um, so. What should our listeners pay attention to when we are when they are listening and are hearing things about this reform or about mass incarceration, et cetera? What do you think are like what should be changed first? You know, what if they want to move forward or highlight, you know, what are things they should just be particularly careful about or listening to when they're listening to these narratives or the, or the rhetoric around this topic? So the, the Kardashian thing is interesting to me because I, I do think it is emblematic of the problem. So I, I, I don't spend a lot of time reading about Kim Kardashian, but I, <laughs> I found this, this interesting because the idea was that she was going to visit the president and she had sort of two cases in mind. Right. And, and so it was this very personalized story of, of people who had been caught up in the war on drugs and sentenced to these very lengthy sentences. Right. And I, as I recall, one was this sort of very sympathetic grandmotherly type, right. Mm-hmm. Who, who should be released. And I, I, I absolutely agree that, that those cases are the first cases we should deal with and we should, we should release those people. But, but I, I think one thing to really pay attention to if you're, if you're working on criminal justice or, or prison reform is, is this, this tactic of sort of category splitting, so we'll do reform for nonviolent offenders, mm. but nobody else, right? Or we'll divert people who have X, Y, and Z characteristics, but we'll still be tough on everybody else. And so I, I think that plays into a bit why mass incarceration has been so, so difficult to get away from is that we as a country have a sort of view of things that we need to be as tough on people as possible. And and so we have a tendency to demonize prisoners as being not like us. Um, I think this is exactly why everybody said to me 15 years ago, uh, wait, prisoners have kids, right? Because we, we don't think of prisoners as being uh, parents as, or as being family members. And, and I say collectively, we, I certainly, I do certainly, certainly you all do, but, but we as a country don't. And so I worry a little bit about finding one sympathetic story. We should let that person out, mm. but not having a conversation about, you know, the fact that our sentences are ridiculously long mm-hmm. compared to any other country. Right. So, so I do, work. I'm doing a paper with someone on imprisonment in Denmark. And there the average prison sentence is, is very, very short. And for us, it's a couple of years. Mm. And so I think we don't, we don't do that particularly well. We tend to personalize particular cases. And it's worth noting that the most punitive laws 
that have driven sentence length increases are laws that are named after victims, right? We have to call it Megan's mm-hmm. law or Jacob's law, right? And and so that kind of personalization doesn't really attack the broader premise, which is that we are locking people up for ridiculous amounts of time, uh, regardless of whether it was a drug crime or a violent crime or something mm-hmm. else. Um, I think it also, you know, if you have some training in criminology, right, the idea of a nonviolent offender doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, There's people do all kinds of things and they don't necessarily sit in the category that we impose on them reliably. Mm -hmm. So so I think those sorts of of reforms I would be suspicious of. Mm. So when thinking about reform, we know how sometimes uh, you, you spoke about how we like to, you know, divide the types of reform. So we're going to do things for nonviolent offenders, uh, but we're going to stay tough on other people. And we also think about the way government has uh, implemented different types of reforms that have like desperate impacts on individuals from different racial backgrounds. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about some changes uh, that we could uh, implement or that we should focus on that are race specific. Uh, In other words, what should we focus on to make sure that criminal justice reform and practices will be applied fairly and not benefit whites more than blacks, if that makes any sense? Sure, it does. Uh, So this is a, is a hard question. And I, I think I, I'm generally a person who's pretty positive, but I, I, this is probably where my cynicism comes out. I, there are so many policies in the criminal justice system that are, that are sort of race neutral on their face and absolutely not in terms of how they're applied or the outcomes. So I, I think it's really hard uh, to predict what kinds of policies um, wouldn't be used in, a, in that way. But the one that I think of and the one that, worries me a lot in the current climate is uh, the use of criminal history scores and and in particular the use of risk assessment. So that's something you probably are reading a lot about and, and the idea is that risk assessment is supposed to help us make better decisions. It comes out of a sort of big data movement where we should be using information objectively. Uh, But I find that in many cases, criminal history data uh, in risk assessment sorts of regimes simply encodes race. And so I'll give you an example. Um, A lot of times these decisions about whether to to detain someone before trial, for example, or or mete out some other punishment will take into account their criminal history. So things like arrests and prior convictions. And that strikes me as deeply problematic because there are some communities, most notably high incarceration communities, which are essentially under constant police surveillance. And so the idea that, that the number of times you've been stopped or arrested, by, if we're making a comparison across race and not taking into account your exposure to police, seems problematic to me. So I worry about stuff like that sort of slipping in to reforms in ways that would benefit whites relative to blacks. Um, And again, it would be race neutral on its face. All right. So is there anything you would like to say in closing that we may not have discussed yet and that you may want our listeners to know 
or maybe look forward to and stuff like that? Sure. Uh, so I always try and end on a positive note and mm-hmm. I, because I think in the current climate, it, certainly people who are, who care about criminal justice reform or are working on it are despairing at the rhetoric that is coming out of the current administration. And so, so the one thing I would say is that the, the federal prison system is a really small part of the system and, and mass incarceration was built by many people and, and mostly at the local and state level. But what that means is that there's a ton of places where you can help and where you can chip away at it. So I, I think there are things that people can do that do not depend on Congress, uh, do not depend on the president, uh, either sort of state or, or local or federal. Um, you can pay attention to things like who your district attorney is. And, and, and electing people who are committed to, to not filling up prisons, right, or not engaging this, this punitive stuff. Um, you can engage with your police department. You can engage with people in your area. You can engage with schools. Um, certainly children who have parents incarcerated have many needs. Um, and, and so I just I think we, we tend to think about sort of who's been elected as overly important for whether or not we can make change. And, and I just don't think that's true for, for mass incarceration and criminal justice broadly. So I, that's where I would end and remind people to, to look not too far out their front door uh, for something that they can do to help. Mm. Mm, that's powerful. Yes, and local, it's good. Local, mm-hmm. Locally is always mm-hmm. good. Look, look at what's around you and not try to... Look at the people all the way up in the in the big houses and yes. the big buildings. <laughs> well, I, I, I do. I hope that isn't too naive, but I I really I just think that you know after the election, everyone said, "Oh, well, we're done." Mm-hmm. And I do. I think that's true at the federal level. But, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, yeah, the, the federal prison system is like twelve percent of the total prison population, and I mean it's jails and state prisons, mm-hmm. so. The, the other thing I find interesting is a bunch of states who voted for Trump also voted for criminal justice reform mm. in the election, which was it. So Oklahoma is an interesting state to look at uh, if you're interested in how that plays out. Mm, yeah. And, it's, and, I, and, and I think, you know, I think sometimes we do have to put more focus on the local politics because there is where you would see probably more. In quick and immediate change compared to focus, yes. focusing on what's going on at the federal level, which can take a lot of time. And like you said, may not may only reach 12 percent of the effective population um, if they right. can make those changes. So I think it's very, very important tidbit of information right there. I appreciate that. Sure. OK, so where can people find you in terms of websites, social media, uh, et cetera? Uh, so I do have a website which describes some of the research that I do, and it's sarahwakefield.net. And, but mostly I'm on Twitter. So that is at Wakefield underscore Sarah. And I'm typically tweeting anything having to do with criminal justice reform or mass incarceration. And with apologies, sometimes soccer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you have to light it up. You, you got to have a balance. You got to have a balance. <laughs> well, also, we want to thank you, Sarah, so much for joining us and taking the time out to really speak to us and our listeners about this very, very important topic for sure. Thank you for the work you all are doing. This is great. I appreciate it. Thank you. 
Yes. All right, so Dad, what's up? What you think? Um, I thought it was really good. Um, she, from the very beginning, um, I was really uh, interested in what she had to say, especially around how academia can be so behind the curve in terms of studying and seeking to understand like what's happening in the now. I think we as researchers sometimes get so caught up in like normal science. Let me see what the literature has said and like what's the what's the gap in the literature and that we kind of miss what's happening right before our eyes. So the fact that, you know, people weren't really in the prison studying this boom, studying what was happening, you know, we're missing information. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I guess we have to go back and look at it from like a historical perspective. But um, I think researchers have to pay attention to what previous researchers have said, but also pay attention to just what's happening in the now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think you know I really appreciate her now her story about you know when she's doing her research starting out and dissertation work you know it was the field probably was a bit oversaturated and people were probably covering one too many papers on one topic with mass incarceration but it was interesting how not many people were really looking at the impact that has on communities mm-hmm. and families and just looking at the various issues around surrounding that one particular topic, but I'm glad that she was able to, to see and, 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 um, yeah, to see that that was missing, uh, because it's a very important topic. Like what kind of effect does this have on families? You know, what kind of effect does it have on children and communities? Uh, that's something that really needs to be highlighted and discussed. Even, even now, I think, you know, and I know she is, she is, uh, a, a good, a great track record and has been publishing some really good research on this. Um, and, and I feel like this has to be put more so in the her kind of her kind of work needs to be put more so in the forefront of, the, of these conversations about criminal justice reform, because like she said, it's not just about prisons or just about mass incarcerations. A lot other areas are being affected because of this one thing. And so we need to have more discussion on that for sure. Mm-hmm. I was also thinking about, so of course, Kim Kardashian came up again mm-hmm. uh, because she's having this like prison reform talk with Trump. And it's just so ridiculous. It's like, you know, if we're really looking for solutions mm-hmm. that will work, we will not be looking toward people <laughs> who have zero knowledge of this. Oh. And honestly, considering the fact that Trump just said that uh, Kim Kardashian and Kanye um, is helping to boost his approval with black voters, I think it's just a ploy to like get Kim Kardashian fans to like like Trump or something. Like I don't, I don't even think that's something that well, of course, he doesn't genuinely believe it. She's not a prison reformer, but, you know. What has America come to? We got two reality stars in the Oval Office talking about prison reform. <laughs> <laughs> like, if you just think about that, it's like, what is going on? You can't be Kim Kardashian talking about prison reform? Oh, man, no. that that's just like... You know, and, and I know Sarah highlight, you know, she and what she really even talking about reform. I mean, she's been kind of um, just highlighting and, and parading these two cases that she's been following and working with. But is that ultimately about reforming the system or just helping out these people that, you know, you've been helping out these one or two people? I think there's also a difference there mm-hmm. in that conversation, too. Like, come on, Kim. 
Yeah, I don't like the idea of, I mean, there are some criminal offenses that are worse than others, objectively speaking, but I don't like the idea that we want to latch on to one or two stories and these are the people we get behind when there are thousands upon thousands of people sitting in jails and sitting in prisons that have similar stories uh, who maybe were over sentenced. And so I don't like the idea of just focusing on like these one or two deserving, you know, individuals or narratives and not focusing on the mm-hmm, big picture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she and Sarah kind of um, highlight talked about this a little bit when she was talking, talking about like non nonviolence versus violent offenders and how, Kind of as a society, we're more open to, we feel more comfortable helping or giving resources or letting people out for that are, you know, nonviolent offenders. Um, and we always kind of separate these categories like they're completely different and one is worse than the other. Now, by all means, yes, there's some really heinous crimes that happen that are violent crimes and some really heinous crimes that happen nonviolently as well. Um, but I think we should begin to like change the way we think about that. Because I also, even though I always pose this question to my students too, you know, when we talk about reform or like reentry program or like recidivism and lowering it and stuff like that and giving resources. And I'm like, why is it that we only want to give it to nonviolent offenders when, when you want somebody to be, you know, less likely to offend or not recommit a crime? I want that violent offender to not commit any more violent offenses, right? And so, and so it's like, mm-hmm. why wouldn't I give this person the resources he or she needs to make sure that whatever is going on can be helped and fixed and that way somebody else isn't getting hurt violently or, or killed or whatever it is, right? I feel like those individuals, not that we're being softer on them, but if we're talking about who we want to see, what, what kind of crimes we want to see less of, well, by all means purposes, we do want to see less violent crimes. I'm sure everybody would agree on that. And uh, but but once we say, oh, let's Mm -hmm. figure out programs to reduce crime where we're like, well, not violent, only violent crimes. You guys fend for yourselves. And it's like, are we really fixing the situation Mm -hmm. because of that? Probably not. Yeah. Yeah. And also speaking of fixing things, I felt like you had a point when you talked about um, and it it was building off uh, Dr. Wakefield's point. But, you know. People are in prisons and in jails with nothing to do. They aren't really being rehabilitated. And then when we think about the case of uh, the Nashville man who had been sentenced for to 35 years in the 90s for a drug crime, you know, was released because of Obama's sentencing changes. But then the U.S. Attorney's Office was like, that was a mistake and sent him back, although he had mm-hmm. been rehabilitated. So it's just like we really need to think about what we are, our goal for incarcerating people um, so that they can come back into society and, you know, be there for their families and, you know, contribute to society. Because we see that it is possible, but it's not possible if you simply throw people uh, behind bars and mm-hmm. do nothing with them. <laughs> just let them languish. Yeah, our goal thus far to me has just been about punishment. You know, and I feel like other countries that are doing it a little differently, their goal is about change. And I think those are two different things. Like we just like, oh, you did something wrong. Punish. That's it. Uh, but it's like when you have a child. Right. Um, you, 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 put, you put your goal isn't with your child when they do something wrong just to punish them. It's like 
this is what you did was wrong and we don't want to see this behavior again. Mm -hmm. We want you to change that behavior. For some reason in America, we just say punish and everything else doesn't matter. But in all kinds of ways, walks of life, you get socialized. You have to learn things, you have to be taught things. And we want to see that change in behavior. And we're not giving people that either the opportunity to change or creating an environment for change to happen. So when you, yeah, and that show 60 Days In, I advise all you all to check it out. Um, it is a really, really interesting show. I mean, I get hooked on it when I watch it because it's just regular. And they, and they have people from all walks of life. You know, they'll have military veterans. They'll have people who are conservative. They'll have police officers. They'll have social activists and all these people going in, um, all different races and that kind of stuff, sexualities, and then going in and trying to, you know, see what it's like, get that experience of being incarcerated and then come back with some information. And so, of course, with that being said, some entertaining things do happen <laughs> while, they're, while they're doing that. I also just want to say you are such, you are so dedicated to your field, such a criminal in your field. <laughs> <laughs> like, dang, you eat, sleep, and breathe, and watch yeah. all things criminology. Dang, I, I got to be like you. Um, I'm just passionate about, you know, so I just check it out. And plus, yeah. I just, it just, because I teach too, it just helps me figure out ways to engage my students, you know. No, that makes sense. You sound like a good, I, I would take your class. I would take your class. <laughs> well, yeah, you say that now. It's uh, great in papers. <laughs> I know, right? And I would be emailing you, begging you for extensions and stuff. But no, this was good. I'm happy we're continuing to have these conversations um, and just open people's eyes with experts and you're an expert too. So pretty good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really good. Thank you, Sarah, again for for joining us and coming to talk to us. Really appreciate that. We know you all, you know, are really busy. Um, And we just take, thank you for taking out the time to come chat with us. For our listeners, again, as always, thank you for following us and and keeping up with us and listening to us. Um, As always, follow us on social media, at BHD Podcast. Uh, visit our website, BHD Podcast, no, blackandhighlydangerous.com. And then you can also email us at BHD Podcast at gmail.com. Um, and continue to just follow us, engage with us. Uh, any topics you think of, hit us up, write us comments, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We're watching all of them. Um, share us, all that kind of good stuff. And other than that, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.